Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. In this episode, I'm speaking with Mark Barker, the head of international and one of the founders of GQG, a global asset manager with expertise in emerging markets and developed markets. Since inception in 2015, GQG has enjoyed strong growth in both funds under management and the performance of their investment funds. We talked to Mark about how he identifies top-grade analysts, portfolio managers, and people who can manage money. We also talk about the various aspects of global investing that I think investors will find very pertinent. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can get me via email at david.clark at codacapital.com. And please remember that this podcast isn't designed to be, nor is it specific or financial advice of any sort. People are always encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Have a great day. Mark Barker, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Can we, as we like to do, is maybe kick away with you giving the listeners a bit of an introduction to yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm look. I'm now getting far too old for this industry. I've been. Uh, I started my career back in 1985, um, in in one of the the very first London hedge funds, um, and um, and sort of cut my teeth in uh, in in a very very early industry. Um, and then I, for my sins, sort of spun off and set up one of the first fund of hedge funds uh, back in in sort of the, the late 80s. Uh, which was a business that we, we we built up over the years until I, I sold it to an Italian bank and ran it for them for a while and then sort of developed through the industry, set up a couple more businesses, um, again, sort of broadly around hedge fund land. But uh, I, w- I, I set one up that we were a couple up that we were seeding early stage hedge funds. So trying to identify young upcoming talent um, and, and provide sort of structural capital for them um, in uh, to, to, to allow them to build the business. Um, and, and that's where I found myself uh, falling into GQG as I, I, I did uh, a couple of these in sort of joint venture with, uh, with Tim Carver, and, uh, who, who's our CEO. Um, and uh, when he was looking to expand the, the international business for GQG, we sat down and figured out that this might be a, a good way to work together. Now, before we dig into GQG, who, who, who GQG is and what it does and how it does it. Um, let me just go back to that uh, point you raised there about um, trying to identify managers and, and people who could manage money. Um, what are the key learnings you got out of that and what are the key sort of points you, you would say, you know, these are the things I want to look for now given what I know? Yeah, look, I think it's, it's, it's a really interesting question because, you know, we spend a lot of time looking at process and, and you know, is it repeatable, which is obviously important. There's, I think the signal to noise ratio in this industry is very poor. Um, so you can have what looks like a great track record because somebody could have been lucky, um, you know, particularly early on uh, when, when they set up their business. Um, so how do you try and tease out whether whether their results were, were actually a, a, a result of luck or, or or actually the real application of a skill or them finding some sort of structural advantage. Um, but I, I think w- what's important is to try and understand some of the emotional drivers uh, for an investor. Um, 
investing is a very emotional process. Um, we we sort of invest a lot of intellectual and emotional capital into making decisions. And sometimes it can be very hard to let go of those. Um, and uh, you know, we, everybody brings their own biases into their investment decision making. And so you you want to try and identify people who understand what those biases are and whether they have worked out a way to mitigate them. Um, and I think that that, you know, if, if I look at the truly great investors that I've, I've met over the last 30 years, um, it's, it, it is generally a sort of a, that, that there are certain characteristics that they have where they, that they're able to walk away. They're able to pivot and change their mind uh, on a decision that they've previously made. And I think they they have no emotional attachment to the decision that they made yesterday. Um, and that and and, and the, the the other thing, and I think this is the most important thing, and it's can, it's part of the same thing is is humility. Um, you have to accept that when you are making decisions, and I, I think this is more, but more, more <laughs> about more than just investing, it's actually, mm. this is part of my worldview. But you know, we, we all make our decisions based on the information available to us. And you have to recognize that there's every chance that you are wrong in that decision. Um, and so, you know, you just got to make sure you don't end up flogging a dead horse. Yeah, I, I love, I think in, you know, we're up to over 150 of these podcasts with the leading minds in wealth management as we bill it. And, you know, sometimes you just feel that, right, I, I love it. And sometimes people have an answer or an explanation for everything and a justification. And then there's other people who I think have been wonderfully successful and are very, very good who say, look, I don't know. Yeah. And that separation and that maturity to be able to say, I don't know. And there's a whole heap of things that I, when I make this decision are variables that I can't control. Um, and also the fact that they can actually make a decision and say it was actually the right decision with all the data they had on hand, even the outcome, even when the outcome doesn't suit them or go their way, doesn't mean it was necessarily the, the wrong decision at the time. So some of those behavioural heuristics and you're really facing into behavioural finance and Kahneman here and um, his sort of work. Um, it's kind of fascinating, an area that fascinates me. And and how how do you go about identifying those people? Are there, how do you work out what's the difference between skill and luck and how do you measure when they can walk away and make those decisions without emotion? Is there some objective way to do that or just really interrogating what and how they've done? I, 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 yeah, I, I wish there was a way that you could sort of bottle this um, yes. because I'm not sure that there is. Um, I think it is, yeah, it is, it's, it really is through conversation. Um, and uh, clearly the more data that you have available to you, um, the, the easier it is to draw some threads and some commonalities out of what they've, someone's done in the past. Um, you know, you could, if, if someone pivots at the right moment in time, uh, then and they're a hero, um, then that's great. But it doesn't necessarily tell you much. But if if you understand why they pivoted, and you can see that that is, is, is sort of very much in common with behavior that they've displayed in the past. Now you can start to draw some conclusions from that. But and clearly, you know, 
one of the disadvantages when you're working with early stage managers, as I was earlier in my career, is, is that you have less of that data. So, you know, the process was much more in depth. And it would often take a sort of a year plus of conversation to, to really try and understand what, what drove someone. Until someone uh, develops a Theranos-type uh, test of uh, blood to work out whether it's in the person's DNA to act on and behave that way, we'll have to stick with it. So maybe fast forward and give us uh, why, why GQG and, well, firstly, who is and what is GQG and then why? Okay. Um, so look, GQG is a, a firm that, that uh, you know, we, we set up uh, back in, in 2016. We're a global equity manager. Um, we are focused on owning large and mega cap, you know, uh, high quality businesses, um, which is a well-trodden path by a lot of investors. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we are a very client centric organization. We've really set out to be one of the most aligned, uh, in investment houses in, uh, you know, in the world when, when, when we set it up, which mean ultimately comes down to skin in the game. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the founding uh, partners have committed to having the, the vast majority of their, their uh, you know, sort of net wealth um, invested alongside of our investors. And, and pretty much every employee and, and, and uh, is an investor in our strategies um, and sort of, you know, amongst the senior management, we're, we're kind of all in. Um, and, but, you know, we are, we are a very performance driven, um, sort of high clock speed organization. I think we recognize that asset management is about the most competitive industry in the world. Um, you are measured every day over a series of different time spans. So you're kind of being measured for your 100 meter sprint and your marathon at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and and that needs to keep you on your game. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's also the only industry that I can think of where the average is free. Um, so if you are not above average, it's very hard to justify demanding being paid for what you're delivering. Um, and I think a lot of people forget that in this business. Um, but yeah, we are, we, we, we are a, 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 I believe, a high quality global and emerging market uh, in, investor and uh, very focused on, on delivering returns to our, to our clients. So what makes you think that and, and what made you th think back when you founded the business that over a prolonged period of time, you could scale and build, because it's quite a big organization. What's the head count? So we're about 165 people now. Um, so, I mean, considering that we are, you know, uh, just over 100 billion US, so what, 155 billion uh, Australian dollars today, and, and you know, that we, we've just gone through our seventh birthday, we're actually still a very lean organization. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's very purposeful. I think you know, we going back to the point I made about alignment. We part of that is that we have always set out to 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 try and have you know fair and reasonable fees for for what we deliver, um, and have have always tried to have our fees sort of at or below the median um, for the industry. Um, I think a lot of firms that have been around a bit longer have a lot of legacy costs. Um, and, you know, we've, we've been able to, to use technology and, and to, to, to come into the industry, you know, as, 
as a as a, as a new business to, to to just operate leaner than, than than most of our peers, and therefore you know we can I think remain competitive on the fee front. What what would be an example of that sort of legacy cost you referenced? Um, look, I think we were laser focused when we set the business up on doing what we do well and outsourcing the parts of the business that that we felt that we couldn't add any value. Um, sort of older firms, they tend to have built departments to cover every element of the business. So we outsource all of our middle office um, globally. Um, we, we certainly didn't set out to build a big fat marketing department. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been very targeted in the way that we built the business. We don't have those budgets every year, you know, for for every different element of the business. It, it's you, you've got to be focusing on, okay, what do we where do we need to spend money? Um, you know, to ensure that we are delivering you know, the optimal service um, to, to our clients. Um, but, you know, d- don't we, we don't get forced into doing something because we did it yesterday. Um, and I think that, that that we see a lot in, in, in this industry, that uh, it, it's, it's very easy uh, to, to become a little bit bloated in this business. Um, and you know, ultimately, you pay a price for that. And, uh, and I think you know, we've seen a lot of cases where you know, you've had sort of uh, you know, consolidation taking place because you need to try and refine those economies of scale. But that generally doesn't lead to a good outcome for investors. And can you talk a little bit, when you set up the firm, you must have been pretty confident that you could outperform uh, certain benchmarks or attract capital. What gave you that confidence? Look, so 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 the the, the you know the, the the intellectual founder of the business in terms of the the investment strategy uh, was Rajiv Jain. Um, he already had a very long and very successful track record. Um, you know, dur- during his tenure at Von Tobel Asset Management, where he'd been since the early nineties, um, and I think. You know, we, you, you have to go back to basics in investing. I think it's very easy to get caught up in the, in the world. And, 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 and we have some, some very simple principles, and that is, you know, if you, if you can understand the longer-term drivers um, of earnings and earnings growth for a business, uh, and I'm, by longer term, I mean sort of five years out, and to try and identify the potential threats to the sustainability of those earnings over the longer period, then then you have a reasonable basis on which to say, you know, do, do I think I can get a compound return from this business of sort of high single, low double digits? Um, and and you then go back and say, look, what, what, what does the market pay me over the longer term, and it's typically sort of seven or eight percent um, is is very long term market returns. So we think that we can we can build a portfolio of names where you you have a structural outperformance, um, and if you're trying not to be too greedy, then you're going to should be able to over the longer term be in a reasonable position to deliver sort of two or three percent um, over benchmark, um, which is well above the average in this industry. Um, and, uh, so I think, look, we, we were confident in the process. We were confident in the, in, in the ability of the types of businesses that we like to own to outperform. And then we had to build an investment team that allowed us to, uh, to, to, to really sort of maximize the outcomes. 
And is performance defined within the firm as really relative to the benchmark or is there some absolute overlay in that? You know, I'm thinking if, if, if the founders have the vast majority of their wealth in, in, in the fund, they either are very confident in those markets going forward or there's some sort of absolute return overlay. Yeah, we're actually, we think very much in absolute return uh, outcomes. Um, The relative outperformance that we look for is more of an outcome than than a target. Um, So, you know, we do say it's over a full market cycle. We expect to see uh, those outcomes. But we are, yeah, with all that skin in the game, we're very focused on managing the downside. Um, and, And, you know, our belief is that if you can manage the downside uh, in in more challenging environments, then you're going to be compounding from a higher base, and 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 therefore, you know, that just makes life easier for you. I mean, we we, we all know the maths. You know, if you if you lose fifty percent, you've got to make a hundred percent to get back. Um, and uh, you know, and part of the human condition is that you attach a much greater value to a 10% loss than you do to a 10% gain. So it's even more important to, uh, to, to manage the downside. And talk to me about performance. How, how have things been since uh, inception of the firm? Look, I, I think uh, I, we, we have, we've been fortunate. We have delivered, I think, to, you know, not over every time frame. And you always go through little periods, particularly periods like today, where we see the market really ripping to the upside. You know, our our expectation is that we're most likely to deliver uh, outperformance during more challenging markets. And we have just come through one of the more challenging uh, periods, uh, you know, in in recent memory, um, through the sort of the, the uh, 2022, uh, where we delivered significant outperformance. I don't want to get into numbers mm. um, specifically, but um, and uh, but no, I mean I I think that outcome for our investors has 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 uh, you know has been good um, since the inception of the firm. And uh, and how would you categorize the difference between managing money in developed markets to emerging markets, and and how should people think about that in terms of the difference of the sort of journey and outcomes they're likely to receive in each of those? Um, I think we, we live in a very joined up world. Um, one thing that's important to us and we think we believe gives us a, a, an edge um, is that we have a one philosophy, one process, one team approach. Um, you know, Everybody in the investment team is a generalist, both sectorally and and geographically. Um, and th- th- there's perhaps a little bit of an artificial construct between emerging markets and 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 developed markets because of the that the, they are so interrelated. Um, but you know, I think you by having a, a deep understanding of emerging markets and 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 the the sort of the ecosystem in which companies are operating there actually helps you with your developed market business and vice versa um and you know you if if you want to own Apple, you have to understand the supply chains that are coming from uh, fr- from all across across the world, and you have to understand you know the, the the behavior of the end consumer, which is in both developed and and emerging markets. Um, so, I think you know the that there are structural headwinds that the developed world uh, is facing. Um, and there are, and a lot of that is around demographics. 
Um, you know, we have aging populations in 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 most of the developed world. Um, you have increasing demands on you know healthcare, um, and and for much of the world, particularly where that's publicly funded, that 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 creates um, you know challenges. Um, whereas you know, in much of the emerging markets, you have, you know, you have structural tailwinds. The median age in India right now is 28. Um, that, uh, that, that gives you an idea of how dynamic the economy is likely to be uh, in, in the coming years. So I think you know, there's, there's probably a bit of a misguided belief that emerging markets will always outperform developed markets um, as you know, typically, uh, EM economies tend to be somewhat more cyclical uh, than than um, than than developed markets, which is why you know, they they can appear cheaper. Um, but but I think what you get from from DM uh, and 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 EM is there's there's a, a lack of synchronicity, um, and so you know these are uh, return streams that. That, that are to a certain degree uncorrelated. Um, and look, if we think right now, um, you know, as, as, as a developed world is, is, you know, is still facing the challenges of inflation uh, and, you know, sort of more hawkish monetary policy after, you know, 10 years of abandonment of any sort of fiscal rectitude, um, the emerging markets have actually become very used to dealing with inflation. We haven't seen it since the seventies, um, and and it's something that, that that they understand and have learned how to manage, and and more specifically, actually, are coming off the back of of a sort of a tightening um, environment, and and we're starting to see sort of more uh, e easing monetary policy uh, in, in a number of these markets, just because they've been through the cycle before us. Um, so that has to create some opportunities. And how, how, if at all, has the changes in geopolitical position and what was expedited, many would say, via COVID in sort of this deglobalization that's going on, how has that affected the, or has it affected the sort of thinking around investment uh, within the firm? Yeah, look, I think it's, it, it's, it's a really good question. Quite often... Um, Perhaps too much attention is paid to politics, um, and, and uh, uh, let's move on to geopolitics afterwards. But you know the political discount uh, that is applied in in countries like, say, Brazil today, where you have you know a, you know, a, a very left wing leader in in, in Lula. Um, I think that 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 often creates more opportunity uh, than, than than risk. Um, in terms of geopolitics, I mean, the, the world is clearly changing. Um, the, you know, the export of, um, of, of production to, to the emerging markets, you know, through globalization has been, you know, a strong deflationary uh, factor for, for many years. Um, and, and to be honest, I mean, for, for most of my career, and I've been doing this for the best part of 40 years, um, and that is being reversed, yeah? Uh, you know, we are we are seeing, you know, particularly in technology, mm -hmm. uh, trying to, to, you know, to to to, to, to deglobalize that and, 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 and to bring production back to, to, to home markets um, that that's going to create some challenges. Um, I think it is, you know, and if you look 
at the emerging markets that have traditionally been very export driven, the, the opportunities, therefore, you have to think about them much more with regards to the domestic market than, uh, than, than their export business. So, so as an investor, focus on, 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 on that side of it. You referenced India and its low population age and the dynamic sort of uh, theme they've got going on there. Is it amongst the biggest growth opportunities you see or what are some of the other themes within that that the that GQG is thinking about uh, really able to be taken advantage of over the next period of time? Yeah, look, we, I mean, we really try and avoid theme, thematic investing mm-hmm. as a business. We are very bottom-up. Um, so, so you know, every name that gets into the book. Talk, get, talk me through the process. What, what You've got 21 analysts or thereabouts, I think. There are, yep, 21, what, I think, what, today. What, yep. what is the process um, of, you know, idea generation through to something finding itself in the portfolio? Yeah, um, it... It's, sometimes it's hard to put it down to a, to a simple list because it, it, it's very multifaceted. Look, first of all, you have to think about the, 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 the types of businesses that we like to own. Yeah? And these are sort of you know, large and mega cap liquid names that have a, a dominance or structural advantage uh, in, in their market and, and have a sort of a wide moat around, around them. Now, that means that there is, you know, a, a lot of these businesses have been in a strong position for some time. Yeah? Um, and so there's, there's a sort of a cumulative knowledge that you have around these businesses um, that, um, that, that you keep going back to. Yeah? There's, there's a few hundred names that are really the ones that we're likely to be working on. Now, it doesn't mean to say there aren't new opportunities coming forward, but, but the bulk of our ideas... Um, are names that we've been in before, that we understand the business quite well. Um, we are very valuation sensitive about names that we want to own. And, you know, but, but you, you need to keep the research on, on all of these names relatively fresh um, so that you can keep revisiting and saying, you know, is, is this looking uh, you know, more or less attractive um, today th- than it was yesterday? Um, ideas, you know, a lot of our ideas come from when we're doing work on one name. Um, you start looking both at its competitors and you look at other uh, businesses within the value chain and, um, and and you can identify new opportunities from that. So, so you often find yourself starting in one place and ending up somewhere really quite different um, because you, you, you've identified uh, something a little bit special that, that's come out of that. Um, we do also run screens, um, mm-hmm. I think. And here you have to be careful because quality, it's very easy to be backward looking when you're looking at quality companies. Um, you know, it's done well for the last five years, so it's going to do well for the next five. That's that's something that we're very cynical about. Um, but it, and obviously any screen that you use is inherently backward looking. Um, but but we like to run screens on a variety of quality metrics, sort of return on on, on equity, return on capital, um, you know, margins, um, a, a f- efficient use of, of balance sheet and 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 low balance sheet leverage. These, these types of identifiers, um, and those, what what that's in t- designed to do is to ensure that you're not missing something. Um, and to, you know, to, to, to ultimately, if you see names that start screening well, um, then, then you need to go and do some work. 
And, and that may well be to underwrite your decision to not own it, but at least forces you to have a view on that business. Um, but just occasionally, I mean, very significant trades come uh, come out of those screens. I'm, I, I think, you know, as a lot of people are aware, we had a significant overweight to energy um, in, uh, in recent years. Um, that actually was a result of the energy names starting to screen well for us back pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in, in 2018, 2019, um, we saw for the first time the, the energy majors sort of popping up on the screens and showing much higher quality earnings than, than we'd previously seen. And, and, and that was a very interesting data point. Um, and in fact, we, we initiated a small position um, in, uh, in, in Chevron, as it was back in, in, in 2019, shortly before the pandemic. Um, now, clearly, that wasn't a position that we were going to keep on for very long, given the world was falling apart. But, but the work had been started then. And so it was as we then came back out of uh, the, uh, the, the, the pandemic, and, and I, I, I hate to say that we saw the world normalizing because it still feels far from normal. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, even as we're talking earlier about people coming into the office or not. Yes. Um, but but we, we, we started d- dusting off that research. Um, and what we saw was that these businesses had gone from being very cyclical uh, to to having, you know, a, a much higher quality earning stream. Um, so so now you need to try and identify why that is the case. Is it is it just by chance, uh, or or do, is the data pointing to something? Um, and so what became clear is that these businesses had become much better stewards of their balance sheet and that had been forced upon them um, in large part due to the to the ESG agenda where they had been denied capital you know uh, by, by the markets for the for the last 10 years um, and you know they, they particularly having gone through that sort of boom bust cycle uh, around shale, um, had, had, had been forced to be more thoughtful um, in, in terms of, of, of how they built their businesses. And there was a much smaller focus on exploration and production growth and a much greater focus on profitability, on reducing uh, lifting costs, of leaning up the businesses. Um, you know, and we, we started doing more work and, and realized that the KPIs for management had, had ceased to be about production growth. And we're actually about things that, that nobody would ever put into the same sentence as an energy company, free cash flow. Um, and, and, and so that, that becomes now very interesting. And, and, and so you, you then have to do more work. And, and, and what became clear is that th- these factors, and, and obviously having, having oil getting down to $20 uh, you know, d- during COVID helps, helps, helps the case. Helps the case. Um, you know, in terms of forcing the, those businesses to, to be better stewards of, 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 of their, their balance sheet. But, um, you know, we started to look at the structural supply demand imbalances in the industry. Um, you know, you, if you don't have production growth, um, then there are going to be constraints on, on supply. And, and, you know, as we talk to other businesses within the supply chain, Sort of those who are either providing manpower or, um, or, or you know, or, or, or engineering to uh, businesses, we realized that there was, you know, a, 
a, a major blockage in 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 uh, in the supply lines to to allow them to really bring bring uh, production levels up, even if they wanted to, and but management were were not being incentivized to. Um, so so that becomes more interesting, and we were able to. You know, I think what's interesting is if you look at sort of the, the oil majors, they were producing significantly higher free cash flow at $70 oil than they were in the previous cycle at $120, $130 oil. Um, so that that's where we get interested. It's not a punt on the oil price. It's about these businesses becoming significantly more interesting. And Look, despite the the the, the move to um, you know to to to, to a, a a low carbon economy, um, the the major investment that we've seen in into alternative sources, we are still at peak oil demand, um, and that that is probably going to continue for a long period. And I think you know a lot of people forget that the transition to a low carbon economy, um, which is something that I think that we all want to see is actually a very energy intensive process. You know, we're going to have to build a lot of stuff. We're going to have to use a lot of copper and steel to get it done. Um, you know, you can't build uh, an offshore windmill on cloud computing software. Um, but, you know, if you've got to build stuff, you, you, you've got to mine stuff, you've got to refine stuff, you've got to smelt stuff, and then you've got to transport that stuff, all of which requires a significant investment in energy. Um, so I, I think... You know, one of my concerns, to be honest, is the denial of capital to, to to the fossil fuel industry over the last ten years, which has ultimately resulted in in pushing prices up um, and and creating the investment opportunity that we were able to take uh, advantage of, has probably ended up delaying the transition to a low carbon economy by decades by making it so much more expensive. Mm. So, you know, it's a classic case of of sort of the 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 perverse unintended Intended consequence, consequence yeah. of you know of of uh, of sort of policies that that were really put in for you know for for for, for, for good right reason reasons. and yeah. yeah so so mark uh, it's it's a great example and thank you for that now they say that you learn more from your mistakes or where things go wrong um, what would be an example where the firm has taken a position and said well in hindsight if we did that if we did that again today, we'd do things a little bit differently. And of course, it's super easy to manage a hindsight portfolio. We're yeah. still looking for one. Um, I mean, look, I think uh, we, 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 every day we push the envelope and we try and find, you know, find new ways to lose money uh, in, in the hopes of finding new ways to, to, to make money. Um, I, think, I think what we've got better at over the years is, and we force this sort of intellectual honesty on ourselves um, and um, you know is being more able to to, to pivot ah I, I honestly I think a lot of the mistakes that, that that we make are made for the right reasons and I go back you know we were mm. talking about this right at the beginning I, I we you know we became much more constructive having, having got out of technology for you know, at, you know, at, at uh, sort of through twenty one, and, and and really exited by the time we got to the to the end of twenty one. Um, you know, o around concerns on uh, on on fundamentals um, and valuations, and there was a sort of a double whammy that 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 uh, clearly the market saw there. Um, but um, 
you know, we became constructive again uh, around uh, uh, around the space in sort of or started becoming constructive in 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 August um, and we started rebuilding our exposure to semiconductors uh, and then to the broader sort of uh, uh, technology uh, ecosystem um so by the time we came into Q4 we were actually overweight again and the Q4 of, of, of 2022 um we then saw the chip act coming out in the US which was you know prohibiting the the, the export of um, of, of uh, high-tech um, mm-hmm. to to China um and you know you can if you're going down a track and you see a pool of water you don't necessarily know whether it's a puddle or a bottomless chasm yeah um and and we were looking at the names we were owning and saying we don't know how significant the impact is going to be um you know on this name um you know if 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 they're forced to 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 cut their their exports to china so we stepped out of the way yeah um and that meant that we were then you know significantly underweight technology again coming you know going through q4 and into q1 of this year mm-hmm. um and it's fairly obvious what the implications of that were yeah. uh you know we we we've had some some significant un, uh, underperformance cut coming into this year for 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 that pretty much that reason and that reason alone um now we, we are back in because what we saw is the numbers coming out of these businesses, and fine, it actually hasn't had any meaningful impact on on their earnings. Um, but I would say that given given the same set of circumstances tomorrow, we would make exactly the same decision because it was the right decision, given that there was a a new known unknown. Yes. Um, to to quote Terrific. Donald Rumsfeld. Um, yeah, no, that's um, that's very helpful. Um, how, how's the firm thinking about? the global investment outlook at the moment. You just mentioned that things have been uh, sort of a spectacular um, sort of rebound of things of, of late. Um, how's everyone thinking about that in the medium to long term? It's a, it's a hard one to answer, I'd say, but... Um, it's, it's a particularly hard one to answer because we try not to forecast. Um, I think, you know, it, 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 at the beginning of every year... Um, Every major finance institution and the banks in particular and some of the advice groups, um, they put out their forecasts for the year. Yeah? Uh, and there are hundreds of them. I think you pretty much only have one certainty, and that's that they're all going to be wrong. Um, and yet the investment industry is very good uh, or, or rather, you know, it, it seems to be very consistent in building an economic forecast and then modeling its portfolios around that forecast. Uh, and, and I always find that quite challenging. I, I mean, ultimately, what you're doing is, is, is your primary reference point is, use, is, is, is using the process, which is almost impossible to get right. Uh, and that, that doesn't really make any sense to me. So we build our portfolios very much more around the world that we see today, the economic conditions that we have today. You want to be thinking about what the potential outcomes or pathways maybe from here um but and 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 how your portfolio is positioned for that um and and therefore and then if if you recognize that there are potential weaknesses um you 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 have a couple of choices either you can try and mitigate that now but 
that may have implications on the portfolio that you have today. And, and they could be quite negative consequences if you find yourself not going down that path. Or you can, you can try and identify the data points that are going to give you a better um, idea of, of which path we are now going down and then course correct your portfolio accordingly. Um, and I think so, so we try not to spend too much time thinking about tomorrow. Um, we want to focus on today. Now, I mean, saying that, I think the, the big question is, you know, are, is the US going to go into a recession or not? And we have no house view. My personal view is that actually there are, you know, corporate earnings are, are, are pretty robust and, and seemingly so that there is no unemployment. Inflation, at least in the short term, is 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 sort of on its way back down in the US. Um, and I think one of the things that a lot of people don't take into account is, you know, 10 years of free money has allowed a lot of zombie companies to survive. Um, all of these businesses own a piece of market share and are not economically productive. Um, higher rates and the denial of free capital is now forcing those business, those companies out of business and their market share is being taken up by their competitors who are more economically productive. It's a great um, point. I think there's been a lot of companies that are selling dollar bills for 50 cents. Exactly. And that's being found out. Exactly that. Um, and, and, you know, you kind of need a washout every now and then um, to, 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 to make it more economically robust. So I personally, I'm relatively sanguine. But as I say, we have no house view. We're not going to build a portfolio around that. Um, I think we all have to be conscious that there is a higher probability of economic volatility uh, than, than we are used to. Um, you know, in the US, it may feel like inflation is under control. Is that transitory? Um, to, 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 you know, to go back to the point of view that, that, that we saw uh, back in 21. Um, and, and so I think that there, 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 there's every chance that we can see sort of, you know, inflation ebbing and flowing a little bit more than, than, than we're used to. So I think it's going to be a more challenging environment. Um, you know, as, as we were, uh, I, I was out here um, last year and, uh, I, I was sort of doing a, a, a series of, of fireside chats uh, in, a, in a conference season. And what, one of the points I was making is, you know, over the last 10 years, um, you know, pre the, uh, you know, the, 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 the markets rolling over in 22, it's, it's been very hard. Uh, it's been very easy to make money and very hard to beat the benchmark. Um, I think we've moved into an environment where active management will probably make it a lot easier to beat the benchmark and very hard to make money. Um, and, you know, the, I, I think the active passive debate is probably going to change um, a, a, as a result of that now. Um, but it's, look, we're, we're, we're in a tougher world than we were, that's for sure. Um, and I, I think that return expectations need to be tempered. Mark, congratulations on your success at GQG. I hope that they continue going forward. Thank you for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thanks very much. It's been great to be here. Really enjoyed the chat. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.
Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.